If you take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 51, let's go ahead and jump in God's Word. We have a lot of work to do this morning. Psalm 51. And while you're turning, I just want to remind you that we're continuing in our series through the Psalms. Uh, we're going through Summer in the Psalms, learning how to use them as a prayer guide. When you look back in church history, the Psalms have been not only a songbook for the church, but also a prayer book for the church. Uh, many of you have emailed me this week. Some of you have texted me to let me know that you've started praying through the Psalms for the first time ever. Uh, one of our members who's been a Christian for over 40 years texted me this week and said, Pastor, I've, I've been a Christian this long and I've never prayed through the Psalms like this. It is changing my heart. I love things like that. I've only been praying the Psalms now for like two months. But you can use them as a prayer guide simply by praying a verse and then just praying whatever comes to your mind about that verse. It could still be the same old prayer requests, but it's praying about the same old things in a brand new way. When you can't think of anything else from that verse, you move on to the next verse and you pray till you run out of time or until you run out of psalm. Uh, we, one of our uh, counselors even texted me this week and she said that she's been able to use this with children, with adults, leave, people leaving and counseling, able to pray through the Psalms, a big help for anxiety and discouragement. If you haven't yet picked up the Psalms booklet, feel free to pick up your copy. They're out in the gathering space at the info desk, and I think we have tables at the doors. If you're more of an electronic person, you can download it off the internet, off our website, or on the app. Summer in the Psalms, we're going through them together. There's a problem, though, that we didn't talk about last week that we do want to talk about this week. And that is that there is actually something that can hinder our prayers through the Psalms. There's something that can cause God not to, we should say, pay attention to our prayers as much. He hears all things and God knows all things, but the scriptures are very clear that our sin can hinder our prayer relationship with God. It can actually keep our prayers from being answered. It can prevent us from experiencing the joy in prayer that God wants us to experience. Two verses come to mind. Psalm 66, 18, if you're taking notes, Psalm 66, 18 says, If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Proverbs 28, 13 says, Whoever conceals their sins does not prosper. This morning, I want you to prosper. I want your Christian life, your spiritual life to be blessed. The, pr the prayers that you're praying as a dad for your kids, I want them to be answered. The prayers your moms are praying, I want them to be answered. You grandparents, I want your prayers to be answered. If you're a student, maybe in middle school or high school or maybe even in college, and you're glad to be on summer break, but you already know about the anxiety that's waiting for you in the fall, I want your prayers to be answered. If you're a new Christian, I want you to, to learn how to pray right from the beginning. If you're a seasoned Christian, maybe your prayers have been hindered lately because sin has crept into your life. I want to help you. I'm right there with you. I have sin in my heart just like you have sin in your heart. And this morning we're going to see from Psalm 51 how to make sure that our sin doesn't hinder our prayers. Please stand with me out of respect for the Bible. Psalm 51, starting in verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. 
According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me that in the secret place, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear the joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, God, you will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in the sacrifices of the righteous and burn offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. The backstory of this psalm is David's sin with Bathsheba. If you look in Psalm 51, there's a, what they call a superscription, or we call today a caption above Psalm 51 that tells us about the background. So the story really begins with David's good friend, Uriah. Uriah was one of David's mighty men. There were 37 really close friends, warriors, that hung out with David in the wilderness, and David owed them his life. Well, we find that eventually David came back to the capital city and sent out his mighty men on a mission. They were gone for over a month. While Uriah was out on his month-long mission, David looked out his window one day and he saw this beautiful woman, Bathsheba, taking a bath on the roof. David should have closed the shutters. He should have shut the window and gone to watch a baseball game or something. But instead, David stayed at the window and looked at Uriah. Picture as he looked at, excuse me, Bathsheba. Picture as he sends his servant down to her house and they knock on her door. And picture as the servant says, you're demanded at the palace immediately. Now, we don't know exactly what her heart attitude was. It's possible that she was in agreement, that she went along with it. Maybe this was all part of her plan as well. Many scholars believe that actually this is an example of what we're seeing today on television with powerful men using their power to force women to do things that they don't want to do. Uh, she may have been scared for her life. She may have been scared for her husband's life. If she had told David no, uh, maybe her husband would at least be demoted in the military. But either way, Bathsheba goes to David's house. David sins with Bathsheba, sends her home, and a few weeks later, he gets a message 
Bathsheba tells David, I'm pregnant. Now, this is a problem because her husband hasn't been home in over a month. And so people are going to find out about this. And so David goes into cover-up mode. He goes into political cover-up mode. I know that we know nothing today of political cover-up, but pretend like you know something about that from the news. And so David begins to cover everything up, and he thinks he actually has a foolproof plan. So he calls Uriah home from the battlefield, and he says, Uriah, give me a, a battle report. Uriah tells him about the battle, and then he says, won't you go home with your wife? Have a nice meal, sleep with your wife, and then tomorrow you can go back to the battlefield. But Uriah is such a man of, of integrity. He's such a warrior. If you've, those of you men and women who are in the military, this is the way I often perceive you. You're just so committed that the rest of us could learn so much from it. But Uriah is so committed to his men that he won't go home. He at least won't go inside. He says, how can I go inside and sleep in a nice warm bed with my wife while my men are still sleeping out in the trenches of the battlefield? And so he sleeps out on the front lawn. David tries and tries to get him to go into his wife, but he won't do it. And the next day, Uriah goes to the battlefield and David sends a message and he says, put Uriah on the front lines. And as soon as the enemy attacks, withdraw from Uriah so that he dies. That's exactly what happened. Now think about what a good man Uriah was. What a good man. Man of integrity, probably a young strapping warrior who had pledged his allegiance to David. And think about David's sneaky motives, trying to hide and cover up his sin. Sure enough, Uriah dies. David brings Bathsheba into his house and she has the baby. So back in those days, it took nine months for babies to be born. So we know that it was at least nine months, maybe a year that David had covered up his sin. But then Nathan the prophet comes to David's house and he says, sticks his finger in David's face and he tells a story and David bites on the story about this imaginary murderer, this imaginary thief. And then Nathan the prophet says, David, you're the murderer. You're the thief. He literally says, you are the man. Behold the man. Now, in a few minutes, we're going to finish up this sermon with those words, you are the man. So don't forget that as Nathan accused David and immediately David knew that he had sinned against the Lord. The gig was up. He had to confess his sin. And Psalm 51 is his confession. Now, if you've just looked at your outline, you know there's a lot of points. It actually moves very, very quickly. But let's dive in together and see what David teaches us about confession as another form of prayer. Number one, we are more sinful than we could ever imagine. Number one, we are more sinful than we could ever imagine. When David begins to confess, notice what David doesn't do. David doesn't brag about his past victories. He doesn't say, God, remember me, I'm the Goliath killer. I'm here to just tell you how wonderful I am. That's not how he approaches God. Instead, he approaches God being authentic and honest and open and broken about his sin. In verses 1 and 2, he uses three words for sin. He uses the word transgression. He uses the word iniquity. And then he uses the word sin. 
The word transgression refers to crossing a forbidden boundary. It would be like North Korea today crossing the DMZ into South Korea. It, it would start a war. And this is the word for transgression. David says, God, I have started a war with you by crossing a boundary that you told me not to cross. And then he uses the word sin in verse 2. We'll come back to iniquity in a second. The word sin also refers to actions. It refers to falling short, to missing the mark. In verse 3, that's why David said, my sin is always before you. Usually in Hebrew, this word refers to breaking the Ten Commandments. It's outward sin. But in verses 1 and 2, a third word he uses is interesting, and it's the word iniquity. The word iniquity means not an action, but a sinful nature. Not an action, but a depraved being, a depraved state of character. It refers to our original sin. The fact that all of us aren't just sinners because we sinned one day, but we're sinners because we were born sinners. In verses five and six, David says, not only from birth, but from conception, I had sin in my spiritual DNA. Now, West Virginia culture is really good at identifying active sins, action sins. We know there are certain things that are sinful to do, and we should call those out. And by God's grace, we should avoid sinful actions. But this idea of iniquity, this just depraved sinfulness, is something that we don't hear a lot about in our religious culture in West Virginia. But that's simply that we were born broken. And all of us to this day have brokenness and sinfulness within us, even though we may be followers of Jesus Christ. The good news today is this. You are far worse than you think you are. That's the good news. You are far, you are far more sinful than you think you are. Here's what I mean. You're going to want to write these down. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10.31. If today you didn't eat breakfast with the glory of God in mind, that proves that you're a sinful person. Romans 14.23. Whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat because their eating is not from faith. And everything that is not from faith is sin. If you didn't drive to church this morning with faith or at least a, a confidence in the person of God, you are a sinful person. Colossians 3.17 says, Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father through him. He says in everything... Give thanks. James 4.17, if anyone knows to do good and they do not do it, to them it is sin. James 2.10, whoever keeps the whole law and stumbles at just one point, he is guilty of breaking all of it. James 2.10. Now, we think that only the big sins are the really, really bad sins. But God says even the sinful, hidden, quiet sins of our heart calls us to be just as guilty before a holy God as the vilest, most public sin we can think of. 
That's what Jesus was speaking to in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says it's not just if you've murdered, but it's also if you've hated. It's not just if you've committed adultery, but it's also if you've lusted. 1 John 1.8 is very clear. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now, for most of my Christian life, I just thought this. I have thought that I'm a fundamentally good person who occasionally does bad things. But as we look in the scriptures, we are all fundamentally bad people who only do good things by the grace of God. You see, sin in the Bible isn't just what we do. It is who we are. We all have a residual Brutus. We have a residual Judas that has left his mark on our hearts. And that's why Jeremiah says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? In Romans 7, Paul says we all have a body of death inside of us. We have a sinful nature. We have indwelling sin. Galatians 5.17 says the flesh wars against the spirit in us. Matthew 26.41, Jesus says the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. What happens if we don't acknowledge that? I don't like to acknowledge that. I live in the world of rainbows and unicorns. I want everything to be happy. But what happens if we don't acknowledge that? Well, quickly, number one, we'll hide our sin. Subconsciously or consciously, we will hide our sin. We see this in Psalm 51. David's saying, I'm going to stop hiding my sin. 2 Samuel 11 and 12. If you try to ignore your sin, you may do it in different ways. Maybe you cover your sin by binge watching your favorite show or with drug or alcohol abuse, or with a favorite hobby, or with a family member, or a relationship that you use to numb the pain. Maybe you try to cover your sinfulness by just doing good works. None of that can cover your sin. Maybe you don't try to cover it, but maybe you rationalize it. You can almost picture David thinking to himself when he's looking at Bathsheba, well, my other wives, they've had headaches for the last three weeks. And so I I deserve this. I'm gonna go down to Bathsheba because I'm a man and I have to do this. You see, when he went to Bathsheba, he, he saw himself, he rationalized himself that he was a lover, not an adulterer. When he killed Uriah, he irrationalized that he was a general and he was doing this for the good of the nation when in reality, God said he was a murderer. Maybe you rationalize your sin by saying it's really not that bad or it doesn't hurt anybody else. Or maybe you blame shift. It's my upbringing. That's why I commit the sin that I sin. It's the temperament that I have. One guy told me once, and I wrote this down, the doctor told me I have a propensity towards destructive choices. I'm like, join the club, pal. We all have a propensity toward destructive choices. It's called a sinful nature. If we hide our sin, number two, we'll also feel dirty. We'll feel dirty. 
We see it in verses three and in verses five. Our sin is always before us. In verse five, our sinfulness was woven into our spiritual DNA from our mother's womb, and it causes great shame. We don't have time to go into it, but in verses one and verse nine, there's this word blot. The Hebrew word, he says, blot out my sin. The picture there, so I guess we are going to go into it. The picture is, is a, a fabric that is just soaked with ink all the way down to the innermost parts, and it almost takes like a, a bleaching agent to wipe it out. It's dirty. It's filthy. He says, that's who we are. Is there something you did this week, something you said this week, that if it would be put on video on our big screens, you would be ashamed. The truth is all of us have sins from this past week and the week before and the week before because sin makes us feel dirty. Sin causes us to hate life. Unconfessed sin causes us to hate life. In verse 8, uh, we see it affects us physically right down to the bones. In Psalm 32, David said, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped in the heat of summer. Number four, when we refuse to acknowledge our sin, we worship because we have to, not because we want to. We worship because we have to, not because we want to. In verse 16, David acknowledges that with unconfessed sin, worship is just a ritual. Picture for that year as David is hiding his sin, trying to hide it from God and other people. And David probably still goes to the tabernacle. David still goes in public worship, but it wasn't as sweet. He, he alludes to the fact that it was just duty, but it wasn't from his heart. Number five, when we have unconfessed sin, we lose our love for unbelievers. In verse 13, David, when he began to confess his sin, he, he confesses, God, you've given me a love for transgressors again. Why is it that when we harbor sin in our hearts that we're, we don't have an impact on unbelievers? Most of the time it's because we're ashamed. I mean, if my neighbors are knowing that I'm not treating my family with love and loving my wife and being honorable to my kids, if my neighbors see me as being a jerk, how in the world can I witness to them of the gospel of Jesus Christ? I won't do it because I know it affects the way I witness. It also affects us by making us judgmental towards unbelievers. When we don't see our sin as deplorable in the sight of God, we'll somehow think everybody else is too bad for us to spend time with. And number six, it hurts God's family. It hurts God's family. David paid the consequences for his sin for years by rebelling against God. If you have a critical fault-finding spirit, it hurts more than you. It hurts the family of God. If you look at other people's faults with a microscope, but you look at your own faults with a telescope, it hurts the family of God. If you come into church thinking that everybody else is more sinful than you, your attitude will hurt the family of God without you knowing it. If you're more suspect of everybody else than you are of your own heart, it will hurt the family of God. 
If you love being right and winning arguments more than you love the person sitting next to you, you will hurt the family of God. And when is the last time you confess to anybody that you had a sinful problem or that you had a burden or even asked anybody else for prayer? That arrogance hurts the family of God. Now this morning, aren't you glad you came. Isn't that encouraging? Everything we just talked about. I hope that makes you glad you came. Those are really hard things for us to talk about. But I'm only scratching the surface to what the Bible says we are more broken than we could ever imagine. Every one of us. But the good news is on the flip side of Psalm 51. And although you are more broken than you ever can imagine, you are more loved than you could ever hope. You are more loved than you can ever hope. We see it in verse 1. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. And he points in verses 1 and 2 to the mercy of God, the unmerited goodness of God. That word is the same word used in number 625. It's that famous benediction that many of us have on our walls and paintings in our home that says, the Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. It's the same word for grace or gracious. He points to God's unfailing love, his committed love, his continuing love, and his great compassion, this emotional feeling kind of love. Is love a choice? Absolutely. Is love a feeling? You better believe it. It's both. And he says that God feels both toward you because of Jesus. Jesus knew we were broken in our sin. And God the Father so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus went to the cross because not just he was a loving savior, but because he had a loving father. And God loved you to send and give up his own son to die in your place so that you could have his life. The world says that Clark Kent had to become Superman to save the world. But the Bible says that Superman had to become Clark Kent to save the world. Jesus became us. He became human to take our place. He died on the cross and was buried and rose again, which is why Romans chapter 8 can promise us, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? 
No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I am convinced, Paul says, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor present, neither present nor the future, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's a chart I'd love us to memorize. Super easy. You don't have to memorize the words. But if you can memorize this chart, and even this afternoon, if you're able to draw it on a napkin, then you know you've got it memorized for life. What we're talking about the sermon is this chart. A moment ago, we talked about the depths of our sin. And you look in the Bible, you realize every year that you're a Christian, you're actually far worse than you think you are. When I became a believer, I knew I was a sinner, and that was about it. Now I've been a believer for a couple of decades, and I know I am a real sinner. So every year that we're Christians, we, we go deeper in our knowledge of our sinfulness. But what I'm preaching now is about how that we can know the, the height and the, the glory of God's holiness and the reaches of his love. So when you think about God's holiness and his perfection, and you think about the depth of your sin, when you first become a Christian, you know that the only thing that can connect those two is the cross. And you're like, wow, Jesus died on the cross for me. A few years go by and you realize how much more sinful you are and how much more love God has for you and how holy he is. All of a sudden you go, wow, man, the cross is a pretty big deal. And then a few more years go by and you live some life and you commit some more sin and you study the holiness of God and you realize, wow, the cross is a really big deal. Psalm 51 is this chart in writing. The psalmist is saying, know the depths and the sickness and the disease of your sin more than you have ever known it before. But know the height and the breadth and the width and the love of Almighty God more than you ever have before. And what we want to do at Bible Center Church is make much of the cross because the cross is the only thing that connects the two. A weak need Christianity that doesn't talk about sin. A modern little sprinkled faith Christianity that doesn't talk about the wretchedness of our heart will never know the glory of the cross because people who aren't that bad don't need a big savior. But people like us who know that we are bad, oh, the depths and the love of God, how high, how high, how holy, how glorious is he to save a sinner as wretched as me. That's the beauty of Psalm 51. What will happen if we believe that? Well, quickly, we'll confess our sin. It'll just be natural. We'll confess our sin. God, I, I come to you with confession. I, like David, I've sinned against you and you alone. David had sinned against other people, but he felt as though it ultimately was only a sin against God. In verse 9, he says, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Verse 9 is the, the crux of this psalm. It's the heart of this psalm. 
He doesn't try to rationalize his sin, but he confesses it. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. We'll confess our sin. When you think about confessing your sin, think not of a courtroom and a judge, but think more along the lines of a father and a child. Many of you had really good fathers like I have, and you know what it's like to go to your dad. I remember the first time I got in a wreck, I had a, my first car was a, a van. It was, he had a Mustang, and I called that my first car, but I never owned the Mustang. My first car was a van that I owned, and we were trying to beat the other guys to Dairy Queen because the girls were already there. And I was in the church parking lot, and I threw the car in reverse and ran right back into a little sports car parked behind me. And the mom who owns that sports car was holding a little baby girl in her arms, and that's now J.D. Thompson's wife, uh, Hannah. Uh, so I go home to my dad, and I, I tell my dad, I, 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 I did this. That's confession to a father. Think of that Allstate commercial where the kid's sitting at the foot of his parents' bed. I know it's not apples for apples, but you get the idea. You're no longer under the judgment of God if you're a believer, but you have his love as your father. But he says, confess your sins. Number two, it'll make you feel clean. It'll make you feel clean. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit in me. Number three, you'll be more likely to enjoy life. You'll be much more likely to enjoy life. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. David didn't lose his joy when he sinned against Bathsheba. He lost his joy before he sinned with Bathsheba, which is why he sinned with Bathsheba. When we're passionately in love with God, we're so less likely to step into sin but when you become bored with God, you'll step into sin every time. Jonathan Edwards in Religious Affections says, it is better that I, that all, all gracious affections that are sweet aroma to Christ, it's better that I see them as broken-hearted affections. A truly Christian love, either towards God or others, is a humble love. The desires of the saints are humble desires. Their hope is a humble hope, and their joy, though humble, broken joy, is full of glory. Number five, or number four, worship God because we want to. When we confess our sins, we'll worship God because we want to. In verses 15 and through 17, he refers to praising God. It's no longer something he was doing out of just duty, but he wanted to do it. And the number five will influence unbelievers again. In verse 13, David says, I will teach transgressors your ways. You can almost get the idea that during that year, as he's hiding his sin, He's so judgmental or maybe even guilty that he doesn't dare try to connect and encourage or point unbelievers to God. But now he has compassion. He's no longer a curmudgeon. He now has a forgiving spirit. He wants to build others up instead of tear others down. Confession made that possible. And lastly, number six, confessing our sin helps God's family instead of hurts God's family. In verse 18, he says, may it please you to prosper Zion. 
to build up the walls of Jerusalem. David knew that his confession before God not only helped him, but it helped the entire community of faith. And today, your confession before the Lord not only helps you, but it helps the whole community of faith. Here's the takeaway for today, something to remember throughout the week. You are more sinful than you could ever imagine, but you are more loved than you could ever hope. You are more sinful than you could ever imagine, but you are more loved than you could ever hope. As we finish and we begin to take communion in a moment, I want to finish with those words that Nathan the prophet gave David a moment ago. You remember how he told David, you are the man. Those words are actually repeated in the New Testament just before Jesus goes to the cross. In Psalm 19, John 19.5, Jesus is about to die on the cross and he's bleeding. He's got a crown of thorns on his head. And Pilate looks at Jesus and Pilate quotes. It's almost word for word in a different language, but it's as if he's quoting Nathan and doesn't even know it. And he looks at Jesus and he says, you are the man. Behold the man. I've never seen this until this week. In John 19, 5, John probably recorded that little phrase for Jewish readers to remember David, Jesus' great-great-grandpa, and the sin he had committed and how Jesus was innocent but took our guilt while David was guilty and took God's innocence. At the cross, what I would like you to do for the next few minutes And we take communion is think about the cross and think about those words, you are the man. Behold the man. Because Jesus died on a cross, you can have his forgiveness. He took your guilt to give you and me what we did not deserve. We're a sinful people. And during communion, let me invite you to confess that to God. But we're also a loved people. And during communion, let me invite you to thank God for that as well. As they come, let's pray during this time of communion. Father, I pray that you would help us in the next few minutes as we partake of the juice and the bread, that you would help believers, us, to see this as a time of confession, but also to see it as a time of thanksgiving. And Father, that you would use this moment to teach us what it looks like to confess our sin. God, I pray we would confess our sin again this afternoon and tonight before we go to bed and tomorrow morning when we wake up, not to be a morbid people, but to be a realistic people. And Lord, as we stay close to you in confessing our sin, you change us through your word in the image of Jesus.